Welcome to the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast, a podcast produced for the sheep industry by Sheep Connect New South Wales. Hi, I'm Megan Rogers, Manager of Sheep Connect New South Wales, the sheep industry extension work in New South Wales, which is funded by Australian Wool Innovation. Sheep Connect New South Wales has a membership of over 2,200 and our main aims are to help keep you and your sheep business up to date on the latest information about all things sheep. We hope you enjoy our podcast. It's time for you. Climate change and global warming have been topical for some time now. Likewise, its effects on agriculture and the production of agricultural products have also been the centre of attention. In this episode of It's Time For You, I'm joined by Doug Alcott, to discuss how climate may impact farms on the central tablelands in New South Wales. Doug has worked as a livestock officer with New South Wales DPI for 23 years. One of his particular areas of expertise is grazing systems management. This interest led Doug to work on the development and release of the grazing systems modelling tool, GrassGrow. Following this as part of a CSIRO-led project, Doug played a leading role in the modelling of climate change impacts and potential adaptations for New South Wales grazing farms. Since then, Doug has applied these principles using the most recently available climate projections to explore the likely impact of climate change on grazing farms in the central tablelands of New South Wales. In this episode, Doug joins me to explore the use of outputs from a range of global climate models to quantify the potential impacts on a typical central tablelands grazing farm. Welcome, Doug, and thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you. I'd like to first ask you to give us a brief overview of the key findings which came from your climatic modelling that you did and if you could describe to us where we sit today on the central tablelands of New South Wales. Okay, um, well, from the perspective of the climate modelling, um, really all I'm doing with that is taking what the climate scientists have done and reported on over the, uh, the, the past few years um, and uh, extracted some uh, projected data for a specific point uh, on the, the tablelands uh, Connell. Um, so the results are really from from existing climate models um, from around the world. Um, I've, I've looked at four models that uh, have the best capability in terms of hindcasting the the climate at that uh, in that location, and uh, and looked at what they project in terms of rainfall and uh, temperatures. And uh, I guess as, as we've heard a lot over the years, uh, the projections as far as temperature is concerned is uh, pretty clear and unequivocal. All, all the models are suggesting that by 2050 we're, we're looking at um, increases in, uh, in uh, average uh, annual temperature, uh, maximum temperatures uh, of over two degrees and um, uh, average annual minimum temperatures of around two degrees. So um, uh, it's, you know, all models are aligned on this. The, the, the climate is going to be warmer uh, and we're already seeing the, the signal of that coming through. Uh, as far as rainfall is concerned though, the um, there's a lot more noise 
uh, coming. So even though these four models that I've uh, extracted data for are suggesting that they are good at hindcasting, in other words, mimicking what's happened in the past, um, their projections vary quite dramatically. So average rainfall 1969 to 2018 um, in, uh, in O'Connell is around 650 millimetres. Um, but the four models are projecting annual rainfalls ranging from about 600 millimetres up to just over 700 millimetres. So some models are saying, or one model is saying, we might get more rain. Three of the models are saying we might get less rain by varying degrees. So um, I guess on balance, uh, it's going to be hotter and uh, and probably a little drier. One of the, I mean, the key impact on what's um, driving changes uh, in, in global temperatures and, and global climate uh, is the increase in greenhouse gases, um, which are measured, measured in CO2 equivalents. And so to get an idea of what the climate's going to look like, we've got to um, project a pathway of what um, uh, the atmospheric CO2 levels are going to look like as well. And um, the IPCC uh, fifth assessment report has four different scenarios um, that range from very high and rapid action to mitigate emissions through to basically business as usual. Um, so the modelling that I've done, um, or the, the results of models that I've taken, extracted from, from the, uh, the global um, climate models, relate to a scenario of um, pretty much business as usual, because um, to date, that's exactly what's been happening. There's been uh, you know, increasing amounts of rhetoric around what we might do, but um, the reality is that globally, not a lot has been done to mitigate emissions. So. Looking down that pathway, um, by the time we get to 2050, um, we're looking at uh, hitting somewhere uh, around 540 parts per million based on those pro projections. And it's that level of CO2 uh, equivalence in the atmosphere that's, uh, that's driving uh, the, the warming potential um, and also has other impacts on our production system. So if CO2 is going to be our key driver for our climate patterns and the increased levels of CO2 and our climate's going to affect our plant growth and production so much, particularly I'm assuming our grasses and pastures, what effect do you see that this increase in the level of CO2 over time will have on our pasture and plant production? So I guess the, the, um, the impact is twofold. It's, it's the impact on the climate, so what's going on in terms of inputs of temperature and, and uh, rainfall into the system. Um, but uh, over and above that, there is an impact on, on um, plant growth just from the point of view of having higher CO2 levels available in the atmosphere. Um, there's been a lot of science done on this. Um, it's an effect that's referred to as CO2 fertilisation. And in um, our temperate um, grass and legume species, um, the higher the CO2 level becomes, the, the higher the uh, assimilation rate of carbon um, into plants as they photosynthesize. So in other words, it makes photosynthesis more efficient. Um, so for those temperate species, we would expect to see um, by the time we get to 540 
um, parts per million, about a 10% increase in assimilation rate, uh, which is a direct benefit in terms of, of um, potential growth rates at any point in time. Yeah, that's time, quite... Ex yeah, sorry. I was going to say that's quite extraordinary, and I love your term CO2 fertilisation. Yeah, well, I mean, that's effectively what it is. It's just, it's just saying well, carbon is one of the... Uh, is one of the nutrients that a, that a plant needs. It just doesn't get it from the soil, it gets it from the atmosphere. So um, um, essentially what we're doing, it's a bit like putting more phosphorus in the soil. We're, we're putting more carbon into the atmosphere and, and um, temperate plants, temperate uh, species love it. So uh, they will um, react almost in a linear fashion um, over the range of CO2 we're likely to see. So it's... Um, it's of benefit to them, uh, the, the plants, in terms of their, their growth rate. That, that's our temperate species. Uh, what I would say yeah, is right. that um, C4 species or, or tropical species are already extremely carbon efficient. That's the nature of the C4 photosynthetic pathway. It evolved um, tens of thousands, millions of years ago, um, uh, the C4 um, pathway evolved uh, under conditions of, of not much more than 200 parts per million of CO2. So, um, hence their their efficiency at low at low CO2 levels and and not having any great response to increasing CO2 levels. Um, so, so, so in essence, we're really increasing the efficiency of our temperate plants and pasture species. Does this give um any extra opportunities for farmers to adapt and therefore make production gains underneath the um, under our predicted environmental changes that are forecast? Well, look, um, the net result for a farm is about how many kilograms of dry matter you can produce over the year and and when you produce it, how does it line up with when you need it? And so the fact that you produce more grass isn't necessarily going to enable you to um, utilise all of it. Um, we know that uh, in systems that have long growing seasons, um, we are able to get utilisation rates well over 50% of pasture grown. So areas like uh, Hamilton in Western Victoria that have long, mild um, growing seasons in the cool parts of the year, which suit temperate species, we might be getting 60% um, utilisation in those systems. But in areas where uh, growth is very stop-start and it's related to um, more stochastic uh, rainfall events, so the further west we go in New South Wales, that's really what we're talking about, um, the less efficient the, the farmer can be in terms of, of actually being able to utilise that growth. So if we get huge amounts of growth over a short period of time, I guess what I'm saying is that's, a, that's difficult to utilise in a... Uh, in a grazing system that's, uh, that has breeding stock in it that are there all year round. Absolutely. And although we're getting such a great increase in pasture growth rate, um, I'm, as you've said there, it's still variable. That must have an impact on um, ground cover for farmers. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, two impacts there. A, the space between these these growing periods 
becomes longer. So, um, you know, mini droughts um, become more common under the, uh, the projected climate, even though rainfall on average is similar. Um, and uh, But when we get rainfall and under conditions of an extra two degrees of temperature, the decay rates of, of litter on the ground um, is much higher. So it's harder to maintain ground cover. So um, I guess what what I've found through the, the pasture modelling side of this with grass grower is that um, um, even though we can actually grow a bit more pasture, um, depending on which climate model we use, we may grow a little bit more pasture, um, we still end up with a lower carrying capacity in most cases because the, uh, there's, there's a, a greater compromise on ground, ground cover um, through these sort of mini drought periods and, and, and certainly extreme drought periods. So there seems to be therefore quite a fine ba balance between pasture growth and ground cover and um, I'm assuming therefore stocking rates going to and managing your stocking rate to try and match those times is going to be really important. Can you think of any strategies that producers could implement in order to minimise the impact on their bottom line and the environment by manipulating stocking rate or? Yeah, look, I, um, I think uh, within a, a breeding system, which we analysed in this work, uh, which is a, a, just a, a fine wool merino self-replacing flock. Um, we've got animals there year round, so it's, uh, it is difficult to, to manipulate that. Um, obviously, at times through the year, demand is greater than others, so, and that relates to when you land. Um, but I think uh, probably the most important thing to think about is, why, is a way, some way to reduce uh, stocking rate um, or even remove stock from country when the ground cover becomes compromised um, without having to sell them all out. So being able to put and take. So one of the things we've used already in, in uh, systems in this pasture out is um, um, drought feedlotting. So feedlotting to maintain animals rather than feedlotting to fatten them. And um, uh, I looked at that within the constraints of, of grass grow and certainly that um, has an impact uh, even in the worst case scenario, um, uh, climate model uh, outcomes, um, we can retrieve some of the losses that we've, we've got in those systems by using that as a strategy. So basically getting animals off country when it gets to 75% ground cover and not putting them back on country until we've got 600 kilos of marine. Those sort of rules enable us to um, carry more stock um, over time, and uh, even though it costs us money while we're feeding them in the feedlot, um, the net result is that we we claw back uh, a third to a, to a half of the loss that the um, the climate impact has generated. Well, it's good to know that there's such a good tool being confinement feeding to help producers in that region to really manipulate their stocking rate and to manage their pasture growth and ground cover. You joined us um, this week for a webinar explaining some of these concepts in greater depth. So people can access that webinar from our website, sheepconnectnewsouthwales.com.au. 
But if producers are after more information about what we've touched on today and also what was in the webinar, can you recommend where they could go to access that information? Um, well, I guess a couple of a couple of points. Um, there's not a hell of a lot of information out there in terms of direct system impacts and adaptations. We did do some work. Um, uh, well, it's it's getting close to ten years ago now um, with CSIRO, um, and uh, that work is is um, uh, published. Um, and uh, that we, we can find that. Um, I'll, I'll get you a URL. How about that? That's probably the best thing um, to connect to that work. So that was done um, or led by by a scientist by the name of Andrew Moore. Um, so there's a there's a pretty detailed national report on that um, with some extra information about regional um, impacts. But probably as far as the the actual impacts on climate itself. So what's going to happen in terms of temperature or rainfall at your location, um, CSIRO also produces some, some uh, very useful downscaled information for, uh, uh, for Australia, uh, which is available on their website directly. Um, and uh, I guess another place to look for that kind of information for for a specific location would be um, the Queensland uh, Government uh, Long Paddock uh, website um, where they're, they're providing information on, on full um, daily time step weather data projected at, at some point in the future at the choice of the user. So that's the level of thing you, you can go to if you want to, um, but if you want some big picture stuff then, then the, uh, the general information from CSRA is probably the best place to go. That's great, Doug. You've touched on some really interesting points there and um, given us some information on where people can follow up if they're after more information. I'd just like to take the opportunity to thank you for joining us for today's podcast. It's time for you and sharing your knowledge with us and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you. Thank you. enjoyed this episode of the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. We'd appreciate it if you could share this with, within your networks. You can also, if you haven't already, subscribe to the AWI podcast, The Yarn. We'd love for you to stay in contact with Sheep Connect New South Wales and you can do this in a number of ways. You can join our network by visiting our website www.sheepconnectnsw.com.au you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at SheepConnectNSW and hopefully we might see you at some of our workshops and events that we run throughout New South Wales. Thanks again for joining us today on It's Time For You and hopefully we'll see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>